Welcome to the College Version 2 Podcast. And now your hosts, Ross Markle and Andrea Pope. And Will Arnett and Sean Hayes, who was Jack from Will and Grace. And apparently they're just like I love really all three of those guys. That's, that sounds fun. <laughs> and so they just, their yeah. podcast starts every week. They're just talking. Like things are happening and it's like, oh yeah. So, so I went to the doctor and the doctor said that. And so then they're like, oh, hey, we should probably start. Um, and funny enough, it's kind of the impetus for wanted what made me want to get back into this a little bit because, um, well, that's all over the tangent. But the whole point is they're never like, welcome everyone to the Smart List podcast. It's always, you, you join them in the conversation. Of what going. So right, that's right. kind of what we're going for here. But um, as I was just explaining, this is our fourth episode, which we are recording third in sequence. And... Chris Holman is our first guest because our third episode, which we will record fourth, we're doing tomorrow, but you probably won't hear this as a listener until November or December. So in any case, uh, our first guest here on the College Version 2 podcast is Dr. Chris Holman. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, great, great to be here. It's fun to to be to be involved in discussion. So Chris is an associate professor of education psychology and public policy at the University of Virginia, uh, as well as the founder and director of the Motivate Lab, which works with various uh, educational and other organizations to implement a, a whole bunch of interventions that we'll we'll talk about uh, here in just a little bit. First question, Chris, how awkward is it when you go to an event or do a podcast and they read like a very uh, like elaborate intro? <laughs> And in your mind, you're like, I wrote that. Like, people are always like, they gave a very impressive introduction. And I'm always the one who's like, where do you think they got it? Like, they didn't scour that. They gave them that introduction. Well, I tell you, yes. And it's even more awkward when, like, you're standing there and they're reading it versus at least if you're sitting down, you're not looking at the audience. It's, it's much better. But I will say, I have the contrast that's even worse. I was giving a, um, a talk at the University of Kansas and my postdoc, my first, I was a postdoc, just showed up and my postdoc mentor had um, back issues. He's like, Chris, I've got, I'm, I've got this consulting gig at Kansas. You have to go instead of me. And I'm like, I don't even know what you mean by intervention fidelity. And that's what, I, that was, gonna, that was my, my postdoc was all about research methods. And so I read a couple articles and then he sends me there. I show up. The guy interview. We have dinner the night before. He interviews me. He reveals that he's going through a divorce and it's just really messy. And I'm sitting there going, "Oh, I feel really awkward. I should say something personal about me." So I shared a very personal detail about me, thinking, "Hey, I'm just balancing things out." Well, so the next day, I'm, I'm going to be with these people all day. It's a day long workshop. He starts off sharing that personal detail, and I'm like what i shared that because i felt awkward and i was trying to like He's so you stood up now, and said yeah Ross, well he's going through a divorce <laughs> I, I i one i did not do that two i then realized this guy's an open book everybody here knows he's going through a divorce so like i was just the next person in the room that he told so at that moment i didn't realize that at that time uh hey at least people aren't sharing, you know, very intimate, you know, personal details about me, myself. So, uh, and I, by the way, I did not share, I went through a divorce. I've never been divorced, happily married for 
uh, 20 wow. some years. Oh, my wife's going to kill me. Uh, the exact number 27 years. Well, I have to give so, you, not I mean, I, that's very salient given that I'm leaving uh, the country for my wedding in five days. Uh, and so we're, hey. we're now 12 days away from the wedding proper. So, uh, thanks. You're, you're, you're an inspiration, mm. sir. Um, <laughs> I, I hope you also learned during that visit that, um, what we as consultants or collaborators often find, which is really doesn't matter how much you know, as much as it's more than the people you're visiting. Because, you know, we don't know everything about what we're going to talk about today, but at least we can help take what we know and give it to people who don't even know that. So, you know, it's expertise is local, as they always say. Yeah, so so true. And I really feel like I should go back to Kansas and like not charge them and like correct everything I said, because I feel like, you know, like I, I cringe, like if there was a video recording, like, let's see what Chris said when he was asked this question. I'd be like, oh, why yeah. did I say that? I yeah. didn't know anything. But that's that's how we learn and grow. That's how we learn and go, grow, Chris. We make the Sounds like you have a growth mindset. I do. I do. And let's not start by going down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I tried to feed in the intervention fidelity stuff to get, yeah, get us, yeah. get us well, there. We'll get there. So, we'll get uh, there. So I want to start just um, having you talk. I mean, first yeah. off, I, I think, and uh, Andre, I don't know if you've had this happen to you, but I just got, I've been doing a lot of standard settings over the summer. Uh, and so we'll talk with teachers about like our background in psychometrics and they'll be like, how do you, how do you even get there? Like, what did you study in college? So if you could just mm. kind of tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, maybe a little before the, the trip to Kansas, kind of what got you academically prepared <laughs> and interested for this um, and, and how you kind of got to find this line of work. Yeah, no, uh, great question. And it's, it's like, you know, everybody's journey is unique. And, and, and when I advise students, like I really try to help them center on, um, if you think there's one way to do this journey of life, like that's wrong. Um, and so, you know, I actually left undergrad with a general studies degree. I was interested in so many things I couldn't decide. And, and it took me eight years after undergrad to, to get to a PhD program. And a big part of that was, did I want to go into clinical psychology? Did I want to go into sports psychology? Did I want to teach high school math? You know, I was all over the place. Um, and, and so I had eight years as a practitioner, a social worker, high school teacher. Uh, I worked in residence life for five years. Um, so all the student fair stuff. I remember that about you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when I started at JMU as my, as assistant professor, I too was given the student affairs gigs to do assessment. And, and I was so excited to like bring all my experience and theories of psychology and, and they just wanted, Hey, can you help me write this report? Yeah. <laughs> can you help me get to a survey? It was very disappointing. Um, but, but as, as a, as a practitioner, one of the main things that I ran into was I knew there had to be some science behind what we were doing, or there was the potential. And I wanted to be uh, research informed in my practice, but I looked around, no one's being research informed. Like the social workers weren't being research informed or, or if they were, they didn't know it. They were, it was more that what are other people doing? What's your supervisor wants you to do? What you go to a teaching conference, uh, what's, you know, the charismatic speakers, what are they saying? Or you see a Ted talk, it's really inspiring. I want to do that. Um, and you don't really know if it's, if it, if there's any evidence. And when you ask the evidence question, I would often get, oh yeah, we did a survey. 
And, you know, I had enough psychology in my undergrad undergrad background to know, um, well, that's not a causal design. <laughs> like we can't, it's a survey. Like what, it was a satisfaction survey. Well, that doesn't mean students learn more, they're more persistent, all these confounding variables and alternative explanations for why students may have liked what you've done. So that's why I went back to grad school was I finally figured out, okay, I want to go learn the science and be a translator. And, and uh, the science I was most interested in was motivation. I found myself always gravitating towards uh, to figuring out what makes people tick and how to support them to be more motivated and get what they want out of life, um, whether I was a social worker or a college football coach or, or anything else. So I went to grad school in social and personality psychology, thinking this was the way to go. And I very quickly learned there wasn't a lot of science that was actually translatable. A lot of science was testing theories or it was done in a way the methods weren't weren't done in the way that you could actually transfer those learnings general in the words of scientists. You know, we couldn't generalize those learnings with much confidence to the settings that we wanted to generalize them to. So I switched. I switched from wanting to be a translator to wanting to produce research that was translatable. Mm. And that meant I had to partner with practitioners. I couldn't just... I couldn't do the colonial version of research. I know anti-colonial in higher ed has a lot of meetings now. My, th my, when I say uh, anti-colonial research, it's like we see people doing strip mining where they take their research. They're like, "Hey, school, I've got an intervention. I want to test it. Can I come in? Can I take data away? And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be nice. I'll be nice to you, but I'll, I, I sort of extract stuff and I leave." And what, what I realized, you, that wasn't good enough. We had to partner with practitioners to design the interventions to figure out what was going to work and then figure out, okay, if it does work, how do we scale this? Because uh, you're not going to have a $2 million NSF grant supporting you to implement this if we're going to scale this and all the supports that come with that. So that's what I've been doing uh, since I left graduate school, uh, starting at, with my postdoc at Vanderbilt to really learn education research methods. And then James Madison as assistant professor and now UVA, which I didn't give you the memo, Ross. I got promoted this summer. I'm a full professor oh, shoot. now. So, oh, yeah. man. Darn the internet. You know, I apologize. No, no, no. That's bad. by the way. We're clapping a yeah. lot for, for this podcast. No, no worries. It, <laughs> I, uh, I have a really close friend in life who often says this quote, it's not the title, it's the testimony. So it doesn't matter like what it says you are under your name. It's like, what can you do? What, what do you know what you can do? So, uh, yeah, hey man. Uh, but yeah, so, so that's my, that was my journey really to like understand the psychology of motivation and translate it into the world and then realize, oh, I got to learn a whole bunch of research methods and do some really good research. And, and so now we're trying to do both. We're trying to both impact practice. And we're trying to develop new ways of doing research that we can share back with the research community, especially for people who want to make an impact and do translational research. Not, not everybody does. Not everybody has to do translational research. But if you do, if you want your research to have impact, we got to have methods. We got to have ways of doing that. And so we're making it up like there's uh, and there's there's a lot of great people out there doing it, too. It's not just us. But that that was that was my journey. I, I really appreciate it. I love the the colonial research term. Um, when I started at ETS, we were doing a big multi-institutional project that I was pitching. And they were like, well, how are you going to pay for data collection? And I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, well, you got to like compensate your participants. And I was like, well, 
we're going to give the institutions like a lot of data back and we're going to give them reports and like the, the deal will be if they help us collect the data, we'll give them benchmarking things and all this stuff. And they were like, oh, okay. Like they were shocked kind of like by that notion. And then I realized like over the next couple of weeks, like, cause you'd get these notifications or, you know, on our homepage or whatever. And it was like, if you know anyone who has an eighth grader, we're paying $50 to participate in this eye tracking. And I realized like, that's just the way they think of it is like the very, I don't want to say old school, but like academic research model of like, where's our participant pool? How much are we compensating them? Are they required to be here? And we'll take the data. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. They need data too. So why don't we make this a mutually beneficial agreement? Um, and right. so I think that idea of like, not only, not only the kind of action orientation of the research of being embedded and involved, but then also that you need to give something back, right? Like, you know, if you're going to go in there and take something, you should also be leaving something, um, which is probably like just a good, you know, it's like hiking in Scotland. Like in Scotland, you can hike wherever you want. As long as you leave it the way you found it, you can hike on private property and all that. So yeah, Interesting. leave it the way you found it and maybe even a little better if we can. So yeah, 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 yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, the Motivate Lab and the work you're doing now and how that kind of helps bring sort of your vision, you know, into, you know, all of that into reality, which we can certainly relate to because DIA is bringing kind of our vision into reality. So it's, it's yep. a very similar kind of kind of operational space. Yeah, no, no, it, it's it's very true, Ross. Very similar spaces. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am so excited that we have Motivate Lab. Like I never, this is what I dreamed uh, at some point in, in grad school. And it was just like, I have no idea how to get there uh, because there's I don't see any models around me. Like Wisconsin's very research focused and even the, the projects that were, kind of out in the world, I just, I didn't see this kind of like collaborative mutualism that um, if you read any of the research partnership literature, um, talk about mutualism, like having mutually beneficial goals as a really important foundational element. And that's, we sort of take that to heart. And, you know, our mission statement is to improve people's lives through rigorous motivation research. And uh, the reason why we have to improve lives first is that we only work in partnership with others. So um, usually that's educational practitioners. And also we partner with other third party organizations like my partner with you all or other folks trying to make a difference. Um, and what we've done is we've created a, a team that, yes, uh, a bunch of us have PhDs in psychology or data science, but I, I, about half of us have experience in other ways. So we have um, a woman who is a former dean of, of humanities and social science at Southwest Tennessee Community College. She's our director of uh, translation and equity initiatives. We have um, two women who lead our post-secondary uh, access and success program, and they both uh, came to us um, from college access and success world. They were first advisors, and then one of them rose up to be kind of a manager. Um, and so we have lots of stories of like, oh, we've, we've had people who are practitioners who were bringing into the science and the psychology world, as well as we've got people who are trained on the psychology side who are saying, hey, we really want to apply this stuff. So we're, we're a team that, that tries to blend the research and practice together to do translation. And as it turns out, that's really tricky and hard to do. 
uh, and uh, but it's it's so rewarding. Uh, but we you know we partner. We have over seventy partners in K twelve and higher ed around the U S. Um, over the last I'd say since twenty. 16, we started our first partnership with a state higher ed system. That was the Tennessee Board of Regents. Since that time, we've partnered with CUNY, University System of Georgia, Louisiana Board of Regents, which is all the higher ed institutions in Louisiana. And we just started with the second largest higher ed system in the world, which is the California Community College System. 116 schools, about one and a half million students or so. Um, the, uh, so we've, we've really... Um, yeah, we've, we've sort of maximized now how we're partnering with not just individual practitioners, which is what I started with in grad school. And now we've got whole systems of higher ed. So it's been really fun. It's an adventure. We're still learning a ton. I don't profess that we've got it all figured out at all. But that's that's sort of how what we're doing. We're, we're working sometimes at a statewide scale. And then other times, you know, we're still working with individual practitioners, too. Yeah, so it's uh, funny. We have a... a- interesting colleague connection, even though you, it's kind of a triangle because uh, one of my good friends, Chris Tingle is a director of data at TBR. Oh, yeah. And so he and I, we met playing ultimate Frisbee. Like we have no educational nice. or academic uh, or professional alignment. We just met socially and then started talking about work. And he was like, yeah, we're working with this group that does something similar to what you do. And he told me, and I was like, yeah, I know Chris. Yeah, for sure. So um it's, it is a small world where we eventually all run into each other. So, And, you know, you just have to keep those Chris's, those high quality Chris's close because we're like, you know, we're like your enemies, you know, keep your friends close, your enemies closer, keep your Chris's like in the nucleus. Like we're, we're there, we're there for you. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. You meet at the Chris meetings. Oh, and, and, and there are some. And the yes, Christmas sure. party is out of this world, I hear. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. I would have to, you're ready to be a dad with that kind of pun. It's going. so bad. Hey, here's one for you, Chris. Why do all the Norwegian military boats have barcodes on them? <laughs> oh, gosh. So when they come back know. to port, they can Scandinavian. <laughs> I am so upset. <laughs> That's a gift for everyone. Uh, well, on that note, um, Chris, I'm wondering, I would love to talk a little bit more about um, uh, the implementation fidelity um, component of the work that you've been doing and how that um, plays a role in your kind of conceptualization of what it means to have interventions and to test the effectiveness of those interventions. Yeah, great question. And I know that you know a lot about this topic too, and, and, and Ross does as well. Um, I think, you know, it's really interesting. I started, you know, so my academic work on implementation fidelity or intervention fidelity um, really trying to understand for whom and under what conditions does an intervention work. So take a, a very, you know, discrete intervention. So an intervention is to me, it's any, any kind of anything you implement that you think is going to change something, going to have an impact in the environment. So it could be a teaching practice. Like we're going to start, uh, we're going to have morning meetings in our kindergarten class. We're going to get everybody in a circle and and that's how we're going to start our day to support uh, students socially and emotionally. Uh, or it could be a whole entire math curriculum at the state level. That could also be an intervention. So macro to micro interventions can be big and small. And as a psychologist, 
I was trained uh, to implement more micro interventions that targeted students' beliefs about, um, you know, their ability, like a growth mindset intervention, or um, how relevant they see the material uh, to, that they're learning in class to their lives. So they're learning about the quadratic equation of math class, and the, how does that relate to their life? And we know that if we can help students make some connections there, they're going to be more motivated, more likely to to learn more. Uh, so that was like my dissertation was the utility value intervention. So it's trying to understand um, what what are the what are the conditions under which students benefit more or less from those kind of interventions, and um, what it has grown to is a broader understanding of the role of interventions in education reform. Um, especially in our work in Motivate Lab, uh, also the other thing we focus on is equity. So we only partner with educational partners who are thinking about um, equity in inequity and in opportunities and inequity and in outcomes for students, particularly for students from traditionally marginalized and underrepresented groups, black and brown students, students from lower income backgrounds, et cetera. Um, it's a pretty wide net for uh, marginalization. I mean, we're really good at that in this country, right? We're really good at marginalization. We're great at it. Uh, so, um, and I feel a responsibility as a white man to try to like, uh, to counteract a lot of that. Um, so our, our group, what we're thinking about is how do we help practitioners, systems, institutions think about the programs they're implementing and what role do they play in reform? And so, you know, intervention fidelity is in, in essence, hey, did the thing you think happen? Did it happen? So you think teachers were uh, going to do morning meeting, okay? And and so this is a you know well that that's a that's a kindergarten example. Let's do college example. We think we've got a great orientation program for students transitioning to high school. It's our it's our summer bridge program, and um, we bring students in for two days, and we think they get all this stuff. Um, well. Uh, in actuality, what actually happens? What do students hear? What is their experience? Do they attend everything? Are all the sessions the same? Because not, you know, if you have a big enough school like JMU, they have multiple orientation days. Maybe Andrea delivers the program on day one and Ross delivers a program on day two. You're not identical. Uh, and so you're going to do things a little differently. So what's the experience like? And is, does that variability matter for student experience and how welcome they felt to the university? Um, and so that's really what intervention fidelity was about is understanding just that micro, did you implement things the way you thought with the quality you thought, and does the variability matter, uh, for student experience, student outcomes, or it could be for teacher. If it's a, it's intervention for instructors, it could be, uh, but the broader space is like, what's the logic model for like how this thing is going to contribute to success more broadly. And so our work now um, when we think about uh, intervention fidelity, we actually step back first and say, hey, what's the problem you're trying to solve? What are the pot and take a prudent science approach? So what's the problem you're trying to solve? What are the drivers of that problem? And let's say it's orientation. And we find that uh, at our school, our African-American students uh, after orientation, they're, they're lower in um, how much they feel like they belong at JMU than our white students. And so we're trying to figure out what is going on here. And let's say we identify, you know what? We created this general orientation program, but we're, we're not really targeting 
like some of the pain points that African-American students experience in particular um, around messages they get around non-belonging because of their skin color or um, the fact that uh, um, a lot of the faculty they see don't look like them. So, uh, okay, so we need to do some specific targeted things to address those. Those then become interventions. And now we can look at fidelity there. So before we get to all like focused on fidelity, we have to see where it sits in the bigger picture. And, and sometimes we'll help them come up with their driver diagrams and their overall theories of change. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just slot in. But we want to understand it first rather than just plug and play um, because uh, there's just a lot of problems with the plug and play approach in education. Sorry, more than you asked for. That was exactly what we needed. Um, and I will say, first off, I think this is our um, our regular, you know, episode uh, Sarah Finney shout out because uh, she did that orientation study where they actually secret shopped the orientation. Like they sent, right, right. and I think she went like to one of the like adult students. Were you involved in that, Andrea? I, that was before my time, but I know that she was acting as a student at some points in sitting yeah. in actual orientation workshops. <laughs> yeah, so they did an implementation fidelity checklist and they found they weren't, it was, I mean, it's one of the best like close the loop examples of research you'll ever, ever see because they didn't see the treatment was effective. They did an implementation fidelity check. They found there was an implementation fidelity. They gave feedback. They changed the intervention. And then the outcomes got better. Like it was, it's the story of everything we try to do. And when I say we, I mean, those of us on this call, it's like, gosh, if we could have one, one example of that, it would feel like a great day, like a really, really like a year. I mean, it's a huge accomplishment. So, um, but the other thing I want to get into that you you kind of beat us to the punch because this is the, the the theme of the week. You talked about interventions, and this is such a like popular term now because people have become aware, like I think grit kind of led the way of like, this is an interesting concept, but then people said, okay, how do we change it? And really the, the conclusion was, we don't have a great intervention. And that publicly, I think systemically, was the first exposure to people saying, oh, just having that psychological term doesn't help me if I don't have an intervention. And we think of, you know, interventions as you kind of, is like this discrete change in operation. And it's basically saying, this is what we're going to do today that's different from what we did yesterday. And uh, I've been watching Dope Sick, so I'm very big on the kind of opioid uh, crisis. And it's like, you know, saying, we're going to install this specific drug but if you don't address the overall health system, how effective is that, right? And so you're, when you're talking about um, theories of change or program theory or theories of action, there's a lot of different you know, translational paradigms that can help us understand that. But you talked about both and your organization both saying, we want to insert the medication, but also blow up your entire health plan in terms of thinking differently about diet and exercise, metaphorically speaking. So if you could just kind of talk a little bit, especially from a practitioner perspective about that contrast in, from your work, what are the things that, that I'm, a, I'm a director of orientation? What do I need to be thinking about to learn from those two theories? Okay, let's go director of orientation. This this example, I, I've got good math stories too, like intro math. Let's go math so, story. Uh, we... Let's do a math story. Just, you know, get okay. the academic folks on board. 
Okay, I, I have dozens of stories where I have faculty members, department chairs, provosts come to me and say, hey, you know, we've got a, we have a growth mindset problem in math here at our institution X. I'm like, oh yeah, really? Tell me about that. Yeah, um, our black and brown students are, are failing at a much higher rate than our, our white uh, students. So, and I heard, I, heard, um, I heard you talk and you said, you talked about growth mindset as, as, as an important driver of, uh, for student success. So yeah, we got a growth mindset problem. I said, oh, so you've surveyed your students and you know that like they have fixed mindsets? Like, no, we haven't done that yet. So what I get a lot is solutionitis. Um, and, and, and I don't know if you've heard this phrase. I first heard it from Tony Bright, who is the president of the Carnegie Foundation. This idea that, hey, I've got a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. I just, you know, and, and it comes from a good place like that provost who has uh, um, an equity problem in his uh, or her um, uh, math courses is like, I'm trying to help. And this feels like something that could help, but they haven't done the work to match up. I got a solution. Does it get at the root of the problem? And, and so one of the things we'll do is be like, okay, our first step in our model, we have four steps in our, our model. You have three, DIA, data, information, action. We have four. But the first is empathize and learn. And we'll say, okay, what have you done to understand the problem? Or do you just see this outcome and you know that you've got some discrepancy you're trying to solve? Um, and And if they can answer the questions, hey, we've done these surveys and look, it's, you know, uh, black and brown students in our math classes are more likely to feel like imposters. Uh, they're more likely to think they're not academically prepared for college. And we'd be like, oh, okay, that might be related to growth mindset, but it also sounds like it's related to their perception about whether they think they fit in, maybe they, their sense of belonging. So let's dig on that a little bit before we go in and give all your students these growth mindset pills, or even better, um, let's, let's work with your instructors to change their instruction to be more growth mindset supportive. So we could change, for example, we could allow uh, retakes and instead of, you know, graded once and you're done, you get a message, you failed or you passed. Hey, growth, the, the retake model says, Hey, you haven't learned it yet. We'll give you a chance to learn. Um, so, so our push is to think about, where where is the the issue so that we can go in and insert a support or an intervention that might help and what we increasingly have had to do is really get people away from student blaming because that's what really an unfortunate outcome of Angela Duckworth's success with grit or I would say her popularity with grit and uh, Carol Dweck's popularity with growth mindset was these looked like oh if students were grittier our system's perfect. If students have more of a growth mindset, our system's perfect. So, or if students just knew fractions, our system's perfect. Insert anything about students. It's like the student's problem. Uh, instead, we say, well, if the system only taught students fractions better, if the students, if the system only supported students to adopt a growth mindset, it would be. So that's the kind of questions we force. So the 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 interventions then insert into the theory of change at a different spot. And that's that's a key part of our work and why you won't find a link to, um, here, download this growth mindset intervention and do it with your students on our website. If you dig hard enough, you can find uh, something that might look like that, but we purposely don't do that because we want to be like, hey, yes, students need a growth mindset. 
that helps them. But if that's your lead, you've now blaming students and you're weaponizing growth mindset against them. That's not going to change your system. It's going to make you feel better. Ain't going to change your system. I'm leaning in and saying, and it also might be the growth mindset in your faculty. Like maybe that's something we need to talk about as well. But um, I I wish uh, this was, we were in the video stages of the podcast because people could see me vigorously nodding and agreeing. (laughs) Um, It's so many, so many great points. Um, And I think one of the things you alluded to at the end is that there are folks out there, we won't name any names, though you and I both know them, where you can go to the website and find the intervention and plug and play. And that's not always exactly what we need. I, mean, I My very first consulting experience was in grad school and uh, Rick Moffat, who's still professor at Middle Tennessee State University said, when you're consulting, you have three kinds of clients. You have the client who knows the problem and knows the solution. And that's the worst client because you have no flexibility. They're bringing you in as a hatchet person to come in and do yep. the job. And that might not be what you need. You know, you, when you have a client who thinks they know the problem, but doesn't know the solution, that's better, but still they might be on the wrong problem. The ideal client is one that comes in and says, something's wrong, we don't know what it is, help us figure out what to do, because you know you can get to the right place because you're gonna find the problem and the solution and make sure they fit. And um, you're really making me regret that I didn't add, like I was doing a total rebrand in my mind there for a second of moving us to like EDI, like should we add an empathy stage in there? So um, <laughs> I mean, then it was an idea because I was moving the letters around anyhow. Um, but no, I think- the, But Ross, go ahead. Ross, you don't need to, I mean, I don't know you need to rebrand the data. That's what you get in empathize and learn. You get qualitative data, you get quantitative data. It, that's the point. So I think the data thing- it is, I enough. was kind of thinking because really the, you know, our slight difference in our approach is that rather than trying to, and, and these are neither right nor wrong, they're just different ways. We instead use the assessment of and measure 12 different things and use that to kind of bring a conversation about, about what change right. might look like. Um, and so it's just two different ways of, of going about it. Um, and, and I think we're both, both are needed, as uh, as we'll talk about here in, in a second. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, Andrea, did you have a question? Okay. No, go ahead. So I'll, I'll jump in in a little. What are some of the things in your mind that we have learned or, or in perhaps the, you know, the, uh, the listicle way to think of this is few things practitioners should know that we've learned from kind of this. I, I, and I'll let you throw in implementation fidelity or, you know, kind of. Uh, program theory or whatever it might be that, you know, I'm a practitioner and I just read this article and I think that's something we really need. What are some things that in your work and in the, the research we've, we've learned from this implementation work that we should be mindful of? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, yeah, I would say uh, have a theory, have a theory of change uh, as first. And uh, often like everybody has a theory, they just haven't explicated it. They haven't made it, you know, uh, transparent. And that is like something that I find like you talk to one person, they're like, yeah, our theory of change is like this. You talk to someone else and it's different. You're like, okay, we got to get you on the same page. I can see why you're not making any progress because you're both think you're working on the same thing, but you're working on, on different things. So have a theory. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not an academic theory. Uh, it's a practical theory for how to improve stuff. 
um, and being be willing to update that theory. So, um, and you can update that theory tomorrow, teacher X, by talking to one student. You can update that theory tomorrow. It doesn't have to be a comprehensive survey. So um, have a theory and, and, and work on updating it continually. It's living and breathing. Um, second is we have to support implementation. And, and this goes to your point, like faculty are humans too. And, and motivation is a human problem. So oftentimes things break down in a system because we rely on one actor in the system to persevere across all the obstacles. So in education, it's students. They're supposed to like have transportation and be able to get to class and then get to office hours at weird times and then weirdly be able to afford education but not work because if they work then they can't go to office hours and they can't just like change their schedules on a moment's notice so like uh so so right now it's a lot on students but it quickly turns to faculty blaming because we'll get okay let's not blame students well we got to blame somebody oh those faculty they're lazy they don't want to change they're using outdated teaching methods and and in some cases that is all true uh, there are lazy students too, but most times it's not. Most people working are professionals and we just created obstacles for people in the system. So um, so it's either, the lesson's either like change is systemic and you got to work at all levels or like support implementation. And so maybe those are, are two, two points. Um, so those are three points. I'll stop there. I think those are three that came up most strongly. So, okay, so I'm going to file this under tangential questions, but um, and this is as much for me learning about how to do my job better, but especially with all your work in motivation, um, how do you handle kind of, and I think this, this very much aligns the theories of change, but you run into this scenario where, especially when you talk with faculty, and I can imagine when you're talking with deans or provosts about faculty, but they'll say, yeah, but students just won't do this because they're thinking of like you said, you alluded to it, there are unmotivated students. And even if we do our job perfectly, we're not going to have 100% retention and graduation rates. So I wonder if you could talk about sort of, if we're thinking about just shifting the bell curve, if you will, or, you know, those kind of granular iterative improvements that will not make our system perfect, but will definitely be better tomorrow than they are today. Yeah, you said you're going to file this under tangential questions, so I'm not sure if I'm supposed to answer it or not. You want to yeah, answer? yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think. Um, yeah, so like I'll say that well, the first thing that came up when you talked is that like variability in outcomes is the problem to solve. So, or variability in whatever where our port measures is a problem to solve. So, you know, we can we can raise the average up. But like, what's the variability around that? And a different way to say it is who's being served and who's not. So um, I'm working with a math group um, at a university really close to where I live, uh, unnamed uh, math department, very close to where I live. It's not JMU though. Um, and they've over the last five years made a lot of improvements in how they teach math because they realized and right before the pandemic that they weren't serving um, black and brown students well and students who uh, needed financial aid. And so they're like, we got to change how, and, and those people were not going into STEM because they were failing math. And, and so they made a whole bunch of changes. What they did is they increased the pass rates overall or the success rates overall, but there's still the gap based on racial and ethnic minority status. So they're like, oh, 
what do we do? That's and that's the head, that's the variability. They raise the mean, the, all the boats go up, but hey, we still have this gap in success rates. Why? Why is that? So I think you know when you're talking, I think that's like a really important thing for to help people think about is, um, you know, their solutions. Who are they helping, and who are they leaving behind, and who are they leaving out? And that's where you know equity comes in. If you if the people in the room are only faculty, and they're only faculty from certain backgrounds that can't really understand what it's like to not have all the resources they need to, to go to college, for example, then, or to not be interested in a topic. I get that all the time. Why wouldn't students study? They're here to, co- well, they don't like math, bro. Like, you know, they, they don't want to get a PhD in math. So you, you, and that's most of the students in your class. So you've got to reach them a different way. So helping them see their blind spots, um, and is is a really important corollary to that. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, no, I think it's you're absolutely right. And I'm thinking a lot of um, my friend Brad Phillips. He runs the Institute for Evidence Based Change. He's also a coach for Achieving the Dream, and he worked with Odessa College as part of that. And they, I think, they ended up winning an Aspen Award. And like their whole application for the Aspen Award was. Yeah, we improved rates of, of success, but if you look at our our gaps, and especially being in Texas, when you're dealing with a lot of Hispanic Latino students, you know, they brought those groups, you know, right up to par with their with their peers. And I think that, you know, when we talk about our retention rate is X and we want to get our retention rate to Y, sometimes we fail to realize, like, all right, well, let's think of it this way. Look at all the students who left last year. What, you know, what were their, were they more likely to be of this group or that group? And that it's not, you know, equity work is success work and, and vice versa. And I, there is, I, I mean, certainly you, you spoke a lot to the barriers we built and the, the system being exclusionary. And you're right, we're very good at that. But this is what I often say about like measuring non-cognitive skills is like for all that kind of philosophical and theoretical resonance, the data back it up too. Right. Because equity work makes the most empirical sense as well, because it's helping you figure out where do I need to focus my efforts? How does this help me understand what different sectors of students are thinking? Um, Because we know we know that the statement our students is always an erroneous one. Right. Like there is no single population we serve. There are as many populations as there are students. It's just that the more we get good at understanding those characteristics, the better we get it closer to individualizing that that support and instruction. So I think that's, I think we're in a good spot. Andre, do you have any questions you want to ask here? I have, I have some, some implementation or intervention fidelity related questions. I don't know how well they fit into the the full thread of our conversation, but I'll be selfish. We can always edit it out. So go for it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So the, the, the first thing I'll say that is kind of just like pulling together a few things and maybe, um, talking a little bit more about that, you know, why we even brought up this intervention fidelity piece within this conversation about interventions. Um, I just want to say that like 
I am 100% behind you with this idea of before we start talking about intervention fidelity, we need to be talking about the logic of our programs and interventions. And that was a lot of what my, my research and my background in higher education was centered around. And I think the, the, the big idea there is that interven- intervention fidelity is about answering this question, are we doing what we intended to do? But before we answer that question, we want to ask the question, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And wanting to to make sure that we have confidence in what we're doing um, before we then put in the effort to make sure to evaluate the extent right. to which we're, um, you know, doing that as intended. Um, something that I have experienced when kind of uh, with this idea of intervention fidelity is that it can be very uh, easy and an insightful to gather that information when we are talking about these micro interventions um, or when we're talking about these, um, you know, we used orientation as an example where we have a very set schedule of what's going to happen and you expect that everyone's going to kind of adhere to that. Um, I'm curious what your experience, if you have had experience thinking about intervention fidelity with larger and more complex interventions. Um, and the re- particular reason, something I'm really curious about is um, whether you've gotten the pushback from folks of, well, if I'm adhering to the, if I'm trying to, especially thinking about this equity mindset and about providing more personalized intervention and instruction, you have a teacher or you have a facilitator and orientation that says, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm looking at the students in front of me right. and I don't think that this is what they need. Right. What is that? What does that look like? How do we negotiate that? And where does that fit into and, this and can I just add, Are you trying to get to like autonomy or more just sensitivity of the intervention? I'm, I'm just, or both. I think, I think that there's, I think there's both pieces of that there. There is a, a measure of autonomy and like, you know, where is the space for my professional judgment? And then I also think that there is a question about, well, to what extent we, we know that any single intervention is not going to be equally effective for all of our students. And so what does that look like to make space for that within um, this framework of intervention fidelity? It's a great question. Uh, and I think it gets to the heart of, um, and it's, and it's, it's fundamentally an, an equity question, it, and it's also an effectiveness question. So it's an equity question in the sense of, hey, do we do we actually think that these treatments um, should be delivered in a monostatic way that like for every individual child or student or whoever, it should be the exact same. And, you know, you sort of like you know, one way to sort of think about what your philosophy is on that is like, um, you know, is your doctor appointment supposed to be exactly the same for every patient or does it depend on certain characteristics of the patient? And, uh, you know, think about like the important interventions that you get. And, um, you know, uh, medicine these days is becoming highly individualized. And even at the level of trying to code our our DNA and match the, 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 the cocktail that's in your pill to that DNA based on what we know from research. Right. So it's getting more personalized. And so there's, there's, I think, reason to think, hey, these things maybe aren't a monostatic. At the same time, um, we might have evidence that, you know, these elements are the ones that work. We don't want to go away from them. So in between there is like, there's space. 
there's space between like changing everything, just throwing it all out and starting over. Cause like my students aren't getting it. So I scrapped it and I did something different. Oh, it's not the intervention anymore versus I'm going to say every word on the script, the way it's supposed to be said, uh, success for all is a really famous reading program that like had scripts that teachers read. Um, and the evidence was, Hey, these scripts can work, but then they looked at it. Oh, there's a lot of variability in how students respond and how, so, so that, and that variability mattered, um, some cool stuff done in Baltimore city schools. If you ever want to look at it, look it up. Um, so, so my personal perspective is that, um, building in differentiation and adaptation into the intervention model is really important. And I don't think I have a prescription uh, yet on how much ad adaptation, how much differentiation, but that it needs to be built in both because I don't think educational interventions, especially are one size fits all. And at the same time, it gets to implement our motivation. If they feel like they can own it and you know, we, we do, my experience has been there are some faculty and some teachers, if we go in the classroom, they want to be told exactly how to do it until they get some confidence and competence, and then they'll want to differentiate. And there's others that right from the beginning, don't tell me what to do. So you've got to be a lot more flexible with them early. So I think building it into the model um, um, forces those discussions. And then to go back to what I said before, if you're truly developing your intervention in partnership, then you're going to have like your partners as a part of the design team, yes. as a part of those discussions, because as a researcher, you might think, oh, yeah, we want we, we got to have flexibility. So let's uh, let's let them decide, like, what color the folders are going to be. And the, and the <laughs> teacher's like, I don't give a crap about that. I want to know, hey, if I only have 30 minutes, can I cut this lesson down? to 30 minutes because, you know, this might happen or whatever. Or can I leave out the part on quadratic formula? Cause we don't teach that. Can I, can I, can that still stick to the script? So I think having those discussions, making sure uh, partners are, our practitioner partners are a part of them is, is really key. And then that's where our expertise, the three of our expertise comes in. You gotta be able to measure the variability and um, you've gotta have some measures of quality. Uh, quality of implementation and quality of responsiveness. So how are people responding to the intervention? And that's the, the last part I'll just say is an intervention logic model is going to have key like reactions at once from the target. So let's just say it's students based on different types of teaching. So uh, that, and if that's really the key thing we're trying to target, then you might want to allow some variability and implementation to see if, Hey, some of these natural variations that we're getting because uh, instructors are, are ad-libbing, they actually work better. And so we're going to revise our logic model. If remember earlier, I said logic, our theory of change needs to be flexible and adaptable. So that's where like the learning that's happening is as much for the theory as it is for any like scaling or implementation. So that's why I don't, I don't know if you have a reaction to that, Andrea, but that's what I would say about the, the adaptability or, or flexibility. Um, I mean, I, I think I, 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 that definitely resonates with my experiences. I've found that uh, I, I was very interested in the piece you had said about um, that the implementer's receptivity to what they're, what they're implementing, that, 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 makes, that makes a difference. It's important. And if you have someone who's a facilitator who's resistant to what they're supposed to be facilitating, then that's probably going to impact effectiveness. But I think uh, something that I've noticed is 
uh, I think you made the point that um, if we're we're talking about a theory of change or we're we're talking about um, you know identifying what are the pieces that need to stay the same and what are the pieces that can change or where we have this ability for more flexibility and differentiation, I find that when we're we go back to the theory of change and we're able to not just articulate what we're doing to meet our outcomes but why based on what evidence are we mm-hmm. looking at. To that we expect that this is going to work. I think about your motivation research and, you know, a faculty, if we had an intervention that was designed around this research um, and a faculty member wanted to do, make some changes to the intervention, we might be able to say to them, there's room for flexibility and also there's a very clear reason behind why we're doing it this way. If you're familiar with that research and you still have a reason to believe that in this specific instance that that's not going to be as effective for this student, okay, great. But A, you first need to know why it's being done the way it's being done and have a very clear understanding of why you're making that change. Um, And yeah, so I think it all goes back to, once again, like being very clear about what that theory of change looks like and, um, uh, you know, trying to support it to the best extent that we can with available evidence and research, I think really helps. Well, I'm looking at the clock and Chris, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I want to thank you so much. Um, I I feel like it's podcast uh, courtesy to say like, are there things you want to plug? Like, is there a website? (laughs) I used to do a podcast with, it was a fantasy football podcast. And when we'd interview people, my co-host would always say, plug all the things. Like here's 30 seconds to get, get your word out if you want to. So I, I want to at least give you that chance and you can just be like, it's motivatelab.org or whatever it might be. I don't even know if that's the website. It is motivatelab.org. Sure. Yeah. That, I don't have other stuff to, to plug other than um, I think people should keep tuning into this podcast. I'm excited mm-hmm. what y'all are doing and um, be, I'll be interested to see what the other, what you're doing, what the other guests are saying and uh, appreciate the opportunity to chat with y'all. This episode is brought to you by the League for Innovation in the Community College. The League's 2024 Innovations Conference will be held March 17th to 20th in Anaheim, California. Find out more at www.league.org. Thanks also to our sponsor, DIA Higher Education Collaborators. Want to understand your students' sense of belonging? Want to use vital student data to predict success? How about train your faculty and staff to better integrate a growth mindset into their work with students? DIA's Isaac platform can help you do all this and more. Find out more at www.isaac.net. That's I-S-S-A-Q.net. Now, back to the show. Well, Andrea, this month we are talking about interventions. And uh, depending on your um, reality television binging habits, you may have accidentally found this episode uh, thinking that we're talking about drug addiction. Uh, However, we are not. We're talking about interventions in education and specifically kind of those discrete changes that we make, particularly on an eye for improving student success. And, I, you know, we're going to talk about this in our interview here in a minute. But, you know, I think that a lot of people have been looking at things coming out of psychology and social science recently. And behavioral economics is maybe the most to blame. But thinking like, oh, the, 
we need to intervene. We, we, knowing about all of these non-cognitive things or anything about students isn't helpful if we're not intervening. And so we're really talking about how do we make those changes? And that's super relevant to the work that we do. And more specifically, you as a director of action are responsible yeah. for. Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a lot of times that um, we will we'll talk about continuous improvement. We'll talk about the importance of student learning and development. Um, and there's a lot of conversations about how do we uh, assess these things. But if we're my what we talk about all the time at DIIA, and I know that a lot of other um, assessment and research practitioners talk about this as well, is that we don't want to be collecting information, collecting data, if we don't understand how we're going to use it. And when it comes to evaluating programs, you know, the big, the biggest thing for me is that we want to be able to articulate how and why they work. And we want to make sure that the things that we're doing um, are effective. Uh, and so as a director of action, that's one of the key things that I'm thinking about is not just you know, how do we respond to the data, but how do we create interventions that we can feel confident are going to um, work in the ways that we hope that they will, that are actually going to improve student outcomes. Um, uh, so I'm excited for this episode. This is kind of my bread and butter. Um, I A lot of my, my time in graduate school working at James Madison University was around this exact topic of interventions. What do they look like? How do we build them? How do we assess them? Um, all towards this goal of improving student success. So really excited for today. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting because you and I are both, and I'm putting air quotes around this if you're only listening, but assessment people. And for both of us, specifically in the program we studied at at JMU, I think our entree into quote unquote assessment was how do you know if it's working? How do you do outcomes assessment? And specifically around student learning. And as a process in that, we kind of get these measurement skills. And then you and I both end up in this world where it's like, well, just measuring what happened may not always be what we need because we need to know if we did it right and if we, you know, all those other things that kind of lead to this, this outcome that we, we were initially so focused on assessing. And even for us in our work now, we're doing work on the front end of diagnostic type of thing. You know, so this idea of uh, where we kind of get away from assessment, quote unquote, and in more to measurement, but then back down into assessment for different purposes. So it's, I think about this a lot that uh, I'll shout out a former uh, friend and colleague of mine, Brittany Dalton, still a friend, former colleague, um, but she was my graduate assistant uh, when I was uh, working at Northern Kentucky University. And we had an undergraduate student in psychology who came in to kind of ask us about what we were doing and all of that stuff. And, you know, she said, you know, like, kind of what do you want to do with like your career? And Brittany said, I want to I want to help people use data to solve problems. So succinct. And Perfect. I was like, whoa, that's like, that's it. Exactly. And it's exactly, it's like, should have been our mission statement. Um, but I think the point is, and what we're talking about a lot today is different ways of using data to help, un help us understand how to solve problems. And so, you know, when we talk about like our work with, you know, kind of Isaac and non-cognitive assessment, you know, that's a, a specific creation and use of data for us. Um, when we talk about implementation fidelity and program theory, those are different ways of gathering data to understand what we're doing. 
And I think that's really what this is all about is, you know, trying to get better, trying to improve. Um, And so how do we use this information to understand that? And I think, especially in education, we have been so, so many people, I should say, come from a world where we only gather data because somebody told us we had to, and they're going to use that data to, to judge us. You know, Peter Yule calls it using assessment for prove or improve. And, and we're always on the improve side. And I always find that things like what we're talking about today are really interesting ways to understand what we're doing and whether or not they're effective, as you said. Um, but before we get into our conversation with our special guest, um, I wanted to kind of treat you as the special guest because you alluded to your work in, in kind of what we call program theory. Um, and, and there are a lot of these terms, you know, you and I are prepping to do a workshop uh, on theories of action, which in some ways, and depending on the context, is the same thing as program theory. But when we're talking about program theory here, it's very different than the way we're going to talk about a theory of action. So um, let's, let's focus today on two specific concepts. It's just from the, the mindset of our, our listeners. First, implementation fidelity, which is really, we, we meant to, to put this intervention in place. How do we assess whether or not that intervention turned out the way we wanted to? And we're going to talk about that at great length with our guest. Uh, but I want you to talk a little bit about program theory and, and how is that a similar but different paradigm yeah. for thinking about change and improvement? So when we're talking about program theory with respect to interventions, what we're really talking about is articulating why we believe the things that we're doing are going to lead to our desired outcomes. It's like this explicit articulation of how a a program is going to cause the intended outcomes. Uh, A lot of times when we talk about program theory, we might think about like a logic model where on the right hand side, we have like our, our desired outcomes laid out. And then on the left hand side, we have our program or intervention components. Um, And then in between, we kind of articulate how we expect to get from the program components to our desired outcomes. Um, And oftentimes what that looks like when I'm working with folks is thinking about um, what are the intermediate outcomes? uh, What are the more proximal outcomes that are going to be those stepping stones to get us to that that more distal desired outcome? Uh, And I what I have found with, um, you know, a lot of my background is in student affairs. And so I've worked quite a bit in um, residence life offices, in um, career and academic advising, and multicultural student services offices. And what I often find is that there's a very clear understanding of like, what are the challenges that our students are facing? What goals do we have for students? Um, An articulation of what we want to, what changes we want to see. Um, But very seldom is there a strong articulation of how the programming Um, that is in place or any new programming that's developed, how exactly we're expecting it to make that change. Um, One thing that I've, I am in the work that I've done with program theory at JMU with uh, Sarah Finney um, and Aaron Bear is we talk a lot about um, weak versus strong program theory. And this is something that's really uh, important for me is not only making a connection, not only saying something like, 
our desired outcome is to reduce binge drinking. The way we're going to do that is by increasing students' knowledge about the risks of binge drinking. And the way we're going to do that is through a program that, and through a, a, a lecture about the risks of binge drinking. Because that could be a logic model in and of itself. We have those, we have the program component, the desired outcome, and we have the intermediate outcome, which is increasing students' knowledge of risks. That is absolutely a logic model. It's a theory of change. But the question for me and what separates weak program theory from strong program theory is what research and evidence is there to support those links? The link between um, a lecture on knowledge of risks related to alcohol and actually increased student knowledge. Um, what is the connection, the link based on theory and research between increasing knowledge of risks of alcohol and reducing binge drinking. And this is something that we'll, we're going to get into a bit with our, our guest um, interview, and I was really excited to hear him speak about this, is the importance when we're engaging in this, pro this process of developing program theory of not just articulating what our desired outcome is, but doing a lot of digging into the, the origin of that. If it's a problem, where does this problem come from. If it's a goal or something like we're trying to develop leadership skills in students, what's the research around leadership? What do we know about how to impact leadership skills? Um, and it's not until we've kind of done that research and done that digging that we're able to construct a, a, a um, program or intervention with strong, um, with strong program theory. And I'm going to, this is all going to set up for a question for you, but this is you know, as we've been recording this episode, it's been really, I've been reflecting a lot because as I said, when we, we have our interview here in a minute, like this is in many ways, the quintessential episode of the work that we do, because what our goal is to work with, with organizations, colleges, universities, et cetera, on improving student success. And there is this inherent tension of improvement because improvement means what we're doing today is not good enough. And, you know, that's a very complex kind of psychological thing, but it, you know, what our mindset is more of the better tomorrow than the bad today or yesterday. And I think that, that program theory, implementation fidelity, these are all ways of conceptualizing that, of guiding that change, as you said, in an informed way, so that we're doing that to the best of our ability. And that we're using the research, we're using data, we're using these tools so that, as we're seeking to get better, that we're doing that in the best way possible. Like you said, the program theory is saving us time. It's it's stopping us from exploring other things if we can find some guidance in the research or, or wherever it might be. So if I can just say from a kind of thematic perspective, our conversations today, both you and I, and then in our conversation with Chris, I feel like we're just kind of waxing nerdy about like really specific kind of forms of assessment. But what I want listeners to take away is really this idea of like, change is hard. I mean, like there's the kind of cultural, psychological idea of getting people to accept change. And I think for assessment people, it's really difficult. And, and I think to, to assessment's detriment, people have been so afraid of that, of that tension that most quote unquote assessment people are, are they just want to give you the data because they don't want to make any inference and suggest you're not doing your job well, or you need to change. Those are, I mean, we're getting back into growth mindset and all of that stuff. But the point being of, because of that tension, 
assessment people have been limited and we've gone down this more traditional ITIR route of here's the numbers, that's it, I'm done. You can go and do with it what you want. I'm not going to infer any judgment. And so I say all that to say, segueing into my question to you now, I think if I'm being totally contrarian and saying, okay, you know, Andre, you just explained to me what you do with program theory. I'm your, you know, brother-in-law or whatever at a family function, and I'm, I don't do, know anything about psychology or education. So I'm going to give you the most crass and, and initial response answer, which is, well, it sounds to me like you just like walk up to people and tell them like, you think you know what you're doing, but I'm going to show you how to actually do what you're doing. And it's kind of right. I mean, it, 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 I hate to say it, but it's kind of like saying, look, you run this program and you certainly have experience and expertise and, and not to demean any of that. But let's talk about what overall psychology can give us or data can give us. And I think it's a really challenging skill set of our work to navigate that in a way that's that's comfortable for our partners. And so I guess I'm trying to set all this up to say, can you kind of respond to it? I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago about that tension of you're telling people what you're doing isn't good enough because we want it to get better. And that's not bad, right? It, we always want to get better in things. But can you just talk a little bit about that tension of saying, you're running this program. Now we're going to pull in research. I'm going to show you how to measure it and kind of how we you go, or at least you go about that process. Well, oftentimes when we're talking about program theory, we link it with our conversations about assessment because there's a lot of conversation about program theory more in the program eval side. Um, it's been, a, there's more conversations that have happened there for longer than in the educational assessment space. Um, but there's a lot of uh, acknowledgement in the literature, and I know we'll add some references for this um, in our show notes, that when you have strong program theory, that is when you're going to have meaningful assessment. When you don't have strong program theory, that's when you're going to struggle to A, to assess the right things and B, to know what to do with the results of your assessment. But the reason I'm bringing that up, that program theory and assessment are, they're similar, they're related, but they're they're not the same thing is that oftentimes when I'm having a conversation like this and I might have, it might feel, it's to make it not feel like I'm telling someone you don't know what you're doing. I'm often going to start with the assessment results that we have for their program or intervention. It's I'm going to start there and say, what are the things that are important to you? What are the desired outcomes that we currently have assessment data for? And if we are if we're finding that students are meeting our outcomes, then great. Maybe you don't have a lot of program theory to support your intervention, but either the intervention is working or the students don't need the intervention because we're seeing the outcomes that we want to see. But in the instances where we're not seeing the outcomes that we want to see, that's where the program theory, that's where program theory becomes super valuable. And it becomes, if a, if a program does not have or intervention does not have program theory, that's going to be my first question to them is, well, the program is not working. What aspect of the program is not working as intended? That requires the, them to know what are the program components supposed to be doing? Um, how are these program um, components supposed to be integrating to help support my students to meet these outcomes? If we can't articulate that, then the assessment information, we're not going to necessarily know what to tweak or change. So oftentimes when I'm coming into these conversations, it's less about telling people, you don't know what you're doing, and it's more about asking them 
them, why are you doing the things that you're doing? And if they don't have a very clear answer to that, often I don't need to tell them that. They're going to recognize it for themselves and say, hum, you're right. And sometimes what we'll find is that an intervention might even be designed based on research that is um, has been debunked or research that's older and is has been pr- disproven to work in the population that my my um, you know the, my partner is their institutional context and so yeah I f- I found that oftentimes these conversations it's more about me asking questions I don't have to I don't have to make those statements they can recognize them for themselves and a lot of times it's the first time they've ever been asked that question they um, you know will be working in a an advising office in residence life for decades and it's not it's me coming in as the assessment person who's the first person to ask them why and how is this program supposed to work I remember when I started right out of grad school, director of student affairs assessment, and the VP, my first day, like took me around and introduced me to everybody. And we met with this woman who had been working in student affairs for decades. And I remember, you know, the VP introduced me as the new assessment guy, and you could see kind of the reaction, like the, okay, this is the person who's going to be making me do all this stuff. And they're going to be annoying. And she she looked at me and she said, well, I'll do my best to get you whatever data you need. And I said, well, actually, my job is to get you the data you need. And, and that is, I think, you know, I reflect on this often. I never forget that when my first counseling psychology class of uh, Dr. Gary Labine said, and the very first thing was counseling is not giving people advice. Counseling is help people, helping people solve problems on their own. And I remember thinking, no way, I don't have the patience to do that. And I don't want to do <laughs> counseling. And I've realized over the years that like, no, I did want to do that, but I wanted to do it with data. Like, so like assessment is in- counseling for introverts, counseling for people <laughs> without emotional intelligence, counseling for people who want to help people understand what's going on and get better, but maybe not through deep psychological introspection. Um, So I constantly have that reflection of how weird I've ended up back in that place. Well, yeah, I say all the time, it's like, I'm I'm the expert of the assessment. I might be the expert of the measurement and the data pieces, but I, I, what I need from you is to be the expert of the functional area, the expert of the, the theory and the research in this area. I need you to be able to answer those questions about, well, what are the key outcomes that we should be trying to impact through our programming? And if we want to impact these outcomes, what do we know is going to be most likely to help impact these outcomes based on theory? and research. That's what I need um, my my practitioner um, partners to be the expert in. Um, and yeah, and our, our job is to, to help them figure out, A, what information do they already have that they could leverage in better ways to help support their goals? And then, um, which is oftentimes is the piece about like, articulating the the logic model as they believe the program sh- works. Um, sometimes that's will be weak program theory to begin with, but like articulating what is currently in existence and then helping them to, to strengthen that program by identifying where are the places in this logic model that I have strong evidence to support what I'm doing and what are the places where I might not have as strong of evidence to support what I'm doing or I could probably um, spend 
spend some time digging more into this literature, into this research area to ensure that if there is evidence or research out there that could aid me, that I'm consulting that in my work. I will say that one of the, the the critiques that we hear a lot when we're talking about this kind of stuff is um, uh, how much time it takes to, to acquire that knowledge and to stay up to date. But I'll always go back to, um, I use this example of, let's imagine that you had to build a plane that had to fly you across the Pacific. And there's going to be three stages, build the plane, pilot test the plane, make modifications to the plane. What percentage of your time are you going to spend in those three stages? Um, the typical way that we approach programming and assessment is that if we, we're going to spend not very much time at all building the plane, but then we're going to devote a ton of time to pilot testing it, which is assessment, and then making modifications with we realize that, 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 that the plane isn't flying the way we want it to. Whereas the way that I want us to view program development and assessment is that we want to spend as much time as we can building the plane, um, making sure we understand how to build a plane to make it fly across the Pacific effectively. And then pilot testing is just going to be a small, tiny bit. The assessment is just a small, tiny bit. Um, and then the hope is that if we're doing it that way, that when we get to the stage of making modifications, we're going to have a lot more information about where to make the tweaks, um, what needs to be fixed. So because we spent a lot of time on the building of the plane aspect and understanding how the and, plane and works. So. I don't know. I'm using this as much for catharsis as anything. But I think part <laughs> of the, again, to go back to this tension is how many times do we work with people who say, to stay within your metaphor, well, I've been building planes for 30 years. And I'm like, yeah, but you you were just asked to start building planes 30 years ago. You, It's not like you trained to be an airplane mechanic, right? Like you started building planes yeah. and you've been doing it for a long time and you've learned a lot and that's very valuable and I wanna hear everything you have to say, but there's a lot of background we can pull from and a lot of different pieces of information. And you might, be a great person and super smart and have learned a lot about building planes. That doesn't mean we can't, you know, bring in an engineer and learn a little bit more about, you know, lift and drag and all that good stuff. So that is, that is a great, that's one thing that I never want to make it sound like I'm discounting the knowledge and experience of our educators um, in the, our practitioners, because they are, they have a wealth of experience and their judgment is critical for understanding how to apply some of the research and theory to practice. Because um, as Chris in our interview discussed that there's not often a lot of clear links between research and practice. It's not, research is often not done in a way that we can kind of just take it and immediately implement it. So there's a lot of judgment that has to happen there. But the, the key is you need to be aware of the up-to-date research and the current theories of related to your area to be able to say that you are engaging in informed practice. Thanks for listening to the first semester of the College Version 2 podcast. Tune in after the new year for an all-new slate of topics. Until then, have a wonderful holiday and an even better new year.